Cool. So we're in Revelation chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the, the sixth seal this morning. Not the sixth seal, the sixth judgment. That's a great start to it, isn't it? <laughs> no, we're looking at the, the sixth trumpet judgment of God. And, you know, one of the things that's amazing as you read through the book of Revelation, you know, it can be hard at times, as we've discussed the last few weeks, that in the midst of judgment and looking at it from like a human side, suffering. But two things really stand out to me when I read the book of Revelation. It's the stubbornness of man and the grace of God. You know, though we see judgment after judgment happening the last few weeks and for the coming weeks, what you constantly see in the middle of that is God giving people the chance to repent. And you think that in the midst of pain, in the midst of um, terrifying, like cataclysmic events, that mankind would turn to God when he extends himself out, when he says, come to me, you think they would say, turn. But so often, as you see throughout the Bible, the people in Revelation, they don't. They don't turn to God. Their hearts are hardened. You ask, well, how is that possible? And it's because of the condition of the human heart. You know, in John chapter 3, Jesus, he's having a discussion with uh, Nicodemus. He was a, a priest, um, part of the um, Sanhedrin, um, which is the Jewish council for affairs. And in the middle of John 3, after John 3, 16, that famous passage, Jesus says to Nicodemus, God did not send in his son into the world to condemn the world, but that it might be saved through him. He says, whoever believe is, believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the son of God. And Jesus says this, this is a judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to it, lest his works should be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that he, that his works have been carried out in God. And so what Jesus says is that the condition of man is that he is one who is, he's trapped in the darkness. You know, he is trapped in all manners of evil. And by the grace of God coming into his life, why would he? to God. Mankind loves darkness, and that's the reality. And, you know, God has given mankind every good thing possible, up to and including his son nailed to a cross, to show his love, to show his desire for them to come back to him, that desire to have a relationship with him. I suppose a question might come to mind, well, what happens when mankind is given over to what he really wants? remember last week, Tyrone, when we were looking at the, at the, uh, the trumpets, judgments, saying that God's judgment here is measured, that it's being withheld, that he's holding back even in the midst of justice being done. But as you go to Revelation, we see what happens when man gets what he really wants. And what can God do about that? So that's what we see this morning as you look at the sixth trumpet seal, the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet judgment happening. We see the power of darkness, the power of the enemy, but also the power of our conquering God. So we're going to read verses 13 to 21 this morning. So let's pray before we get into it. So Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, thank you that despite, Lord, our love of the darkness, our love of things that aren't of you, God, your love never stops. 
God, that you loved us so much that even while we were sinning, you sent your son to die for us, to take us captive and to change us. God, thank you that you have redeemed us. Lord, that the judgments we read in this book, we will not experience them, God. God, you have saved us from the wrath to come. And God, as we read your word this morning, Lord, give us um, hearts that are able to understand and comprehend what your word says. Give us hearts that are ready to receive it, to believe it, to, to act in it, God. Help us to, to focus and to trust in you, God, when we don't know what's going on here, Lord. To trust in your goodness and your grace and that the judge of all the world will do right. And so, Father, we just invite just the Holy Spirit here to, to fill us up, God, to, to speak to us, to empower us, to help us to devote ourselves to your word now. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to break this into three sections. The first section is what's happening in heaven as the, as the trumpet is being blown. The second scene is what's happening on earth. And the last one is what is the response between man and God. And so you see the first scene in heaven in verses 13 to 15. If you have a Bible, let's read it together. It reads, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And so we see the sixth um, trumpet happening now. This is a way of reminder. You remember the first four trumpets that were released were chaos on nature. You know, the first trumpet came and a third of the, was it a third of the trees were burnt up. The second one came and the mountains are fl fell away. Sea life was destroyed. Fresh water supplies were destroyed. A third of the stars fell and the, the light of the sun was darkened. But then as we got into the fifth trumpet, you might recall how everyone was saying last week that it turned from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. And we see the demonic forces that God in his grace today is holding back, that the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is holding back. He lets them go. And these locusts, and they came, and they were tormenting men for a period of about, I think, four or five months, and people could not die. You know, it said their stings were like the stings of scorpions, and though people sought death, it could not come to them. But what we see as we get into chapter six, in these sixth trumpet in these verses, is that death has returned. And it all starts here around this golden altar. John says that he heard a voice coming from the four horns of the altar before God. So what is this altar? This altar is the altar of incense. See, in the tabernacle, the, the earthly tabernacle in the temple, once you got past the, the bronze altar of sacrifices, once you went into the temple, into the, the dwelling place of God, right before the tent, right before the curtain, right before the throne of God, there was this golden altar of incense. And the priest, priest would come in every day and every evening, and he would light this incense that would rise up to God. And you say, well, how do we know that this altar in the tabernacle is what we're seeing here in heaven? <coughs> it's interesting. The order of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 8 that when Moses was given instruction for the people to build the tabernacle, 
He said it was to match the pattern of heaven. Hebrews chapter 8 says, speaking of the priests, that they serve at a sanctuary that has a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses warned them when he was about to build a tabernacle. See to it, you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So this altar of incense, it is a replica of the real altar in heaven. And remember, we've seen this already in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see it right there. It says, an angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, together with God's God's people's prayers, went up before God from the angel's hand. So this is the altar of incense, and we've learned already this altar, it represents the prayers of God's people. God's word says that our prayers are like incense to him. And we see this um, throughout the Bible. Think of, for instance, Zechariah. Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. And Luke records this story for us in Luke chapter 1. It's going to be up on the, uh, the screen there. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division on duty was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. So we see as Zechariah was going to the altar of incense, the people outside are gathered praying to God, as the incense is being lit. And Zechariah was praying in his heart to God. And God says he heard his prayer. We see in the book of Revelation, um, the sixth seal in chapter 6, the prayers of the martyred saints, those who lose their lives for Jesus during the tribulation, going up to God as incense. Revelation 6, 9 says, when, the, he, when he opened his fifth seal, fifth seal rather, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And so there in the heavenly throne room, before the altar of incense, the martyred saints are lifting up their prayers to God before this um, altar. Again, as you said, our prayers are like incense to God as well. The psalmist says in Psalm 141, O Lord, I call to you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense to you. And lifting up in my hands as the evening sacrifice. So our prayers are like a sweet-smelling incense coming up to God. And if you're familiar with incense, you know it's this overwhelming, overpowering, sweet-smelling aroma that just blocks out everything else. 
it's almost obnoxious how much incense smells because it gets right up there and everything, every other scent is gone. God's word says our prayers are like that incense. And in the context of Revelation, these prayers, the prayers of God's people throughout history, our prayers today, the prayers of the saints, are prayers for justice. God's people in the midst of persecution cry out for justice. And that's an important thing to remember as we get into our text this morning. The Bible teaches us as Christians, we're not to seek vengeance on people. Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And Paul says, you know, if your enemy's hungry, actually feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Paul says, don't overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Bible says, don't seek vengeance yourself but entrust justice to God. And that's something that's hard, isn't it? You know, you look in the, in the newspapers, I, I'm on the journal a lot, mostly you see the comments sections, but you look at certain outcomes of trials, of murders, of, of rapes, of injustice that has done this country, and you see that the minimal sentences are given, you see the, the luxury crim criminals who take lives are given, and you see where, where is the justice in this? You know, that young lad who was decapitated a few weeks ago, whether he was good or bad, is regardless. People want justice for what happened. And it's so easy when we are wronged to want to get even with a person. And if you're married, you know this. If your wife or your husband um, puts you down and makes you feel bad, you just want to get back. You want to avenge yourself. But God's word says we are to entrust vengeance on our wives or our partners, we're going to entrust all vengeance and wrongdoing to God's capable hands. That he can be trusted. That he will do what is just. God's judgment on the world here in Revelation, including Revelation chapter 9, is an answer to God's prayers for justice. God is unleashing divine justice on a world that has rejected him. And so I think it's something we can rejoice in that that we don't have to be the avengers of things that have been wrongfully done to us. That we don't have to seek vengeance. That we have a God that we can entrust instead. And that's important as we continue on today. But what's happening with the sixth trumpet? We see in chapter, uh, chapter verses 13 onwards to 15 that these four angels are released to kill a third of the earth. So who are these four angels in 14 and 15? Well, they are angelic beings, and angelic beings are real. You know, the spiritual realm is real. We have a problem as people. We have five senses. And anything that goes beyond that, we try to dismiss. And I, I'm almost overtly skeptical in my thinking where I try to dismiss everything. But the Bible teaches there is a spiritual realm. That there are beings created of God that we can't comprehend. And there are some that are good, and there are some that are evil. And the ones that we see here are evil angels. We know that because it says they had been bound, as the river rephrase. You know, when you're bound by chains, you're in submission, but it's not by your own will. You know, when I need to bring my daughter Roshan up the stairs, she'll kick and she'll scream, but I'm holding her, so that she's submitting to me, but it's not by her will. Whereas Nora might just run straight up to the bat. 
and it is her will. The angels in Revelation who are blowing these trumpets, they are in submission to God because they want to be. But some angels aren't. Some angels are in submission to God, God because God is keeping their, their, them there. Think of Jude, um, verse 6. He says that there are certain angels that did not stay within their positions of authority, that they went outside of their allotted authority, and God is holding them in eternal chains for the day of judgment, Jude says. And so there are some angelic beings that are bound. But we know some are free. Satan is free to roam, for instance. The book of Job says that God called the sons of God, the angels, to him one day, and Satan came. And God said, well, where were you? He says, oh, I was going to and fro, up and down throughout the world. We see this in the Bible. There are, there are demons that are not currently being restrained by God. God knows that God allows that for a purpose, but we need to be aware of it. But no, there are angels, like before here, that are bound because the destruction they would release upon mankind would be great. Think of uh, the book of Exodus. When the 10th plague is coming, we often think God went around striking the people down. It says God was going to release the destroyer who was going to do it. You know, God has a hold on certain angels to hold them back from what they want to do to humanity, to this world. And when these angels here are released, they have the power to kill a third of mankind, it says. So devastation, mad judgment. But it's important to remember, as we said last week, this is a measured judgment. That though God is allowing this, it is under his control. Again, only a third of the earth could be killed. No more, no less. And God's word says in verse 15, they were appointed for an hour, a day, a month, and a year. God knew what was going to, what was going to happen. God was going to use them. And so it's not outside of God's control. And so these angels are going to be released. And it says they're going to be released at the river Euphrates. Now, the river Euphrates, that's the great river that rolls through, well, Iraq and the Middle East today. And I'm, I'm sure it must have happened, but I've often wondered if people walk the Euphrates and try and hope and see some kind of demons chained in the bottom of it. We ask, why the river Euphrates? Well, think about the river Euphrates in the Bible. You know, we see it in Genesis all over. But in Genesis chapter 15, God makes mention that the land of Israel, its boundaries would be from the river of Egypt to the river of Euphrates. And so everything in between there was God's land for God's people. Everything in between those two rivers was a place of safety, a place of God's law, where God's people would dwell, where God's people would be a light to the nations. What was beyond the Euphrates River? Babylon, the enemies of God's people who came to invade and take them out of the land. In the first century, in John's day, what was beyond the Euphrates River? There's a nation called the Parthians. They were these famed horsemen who had many battles with the Roman Empire, and the river Euphrates was the boundary. And so beyond the Euphrates is this chaos, is this destruction, is this potential threat. And the only thing that's stopping that from coming to you is this great big river. What we see here is God releases the greatest threat from this river instead, and the devastation it brings is great. After this, a half of mankind is going to be gone. You know, a quarter of mankind has already been killed, and now a further third of those three quarters are left. 
And so the devastation is great. And as John moves on now in verses 16 and 17 onwards, we see how these angels would bring about this judgment on the earth. Verses 16 to 19. It reads, The number of mounted troops was 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw their horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tail are like serpents with heads, and by means of them, they wound. So I thought I would um, spare you any, any images of this this week. Um, some of them are mad on Google. But we have here this description of these demonic forces that these angels command in verses 16 to 19. And he says that the instruments of them are just going to be these mounted riders. And the first thing he says is the number. He says there's, what, what did you say? The ESV, the, the ESV kind of um, phrases it weird. Twice 10,000 times 10,000, which is 200 million. So that's a, a huge number. So some people ask, well, is that a real number or is that a fake number? It doesn't matter. Through studying, I think we can see that the most faithful approach is that this is a real number. Because John says first he heard the number. He didn't make it up. He says it was told to him how many there were. The second thing is this is the demonic army. Some people think, well, maybe this is a real army. And therefore, there isn't a force on the world today with 200 million people in a military. But clearly, this is a demonic one. It's not really restrained by human population. And thirdly, if this number is symbolic, if he's, if he's just trying to say, well, there's a lot of them, well, where do you draw the line in interpreting the Bible? You know, if there's no reason to think this isn't literal, why should anything else in Revelation not be literal? And if that's the case, then how do you really know what God's word says? And what does it really mean? The end result is you can't read it properly, you can't interpret, and you can't understand it. And God has not given us his word that we cannot read and understand it. And so it's a real number, and it's a real enemy. You notice how the focus immediately goes away from how many there are to this description of what they're like. In verse 17, it tells us about the riders on this demonic horses. And he tells us about their breastplates, the armor that they wore. And he mentions that there's three colors, that they are breastplates of, of sapphire, of like red like fire, and like sulfur. You say, well, why these particular colors? Well, when you read your Revelation and you read through over and over and over and over again, you notice that these colors in this book are always used when talking about hell. For instance, Revelation 14 says that those who worship the beast, they'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels of the Lamb. When the beast and the false prophet are captured in Revelation chapter 19, they're thrown into a pit where there's fire and smoke and sulfur. When the devil at last is defeated in Revelation 20, he's thrown into the pit and there's fire, there's sulfur, and there's smoke. And when all those who reject God's love and invitation to receive salvation are judged, 
It says they are taken to the place that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death. And so this tells us that their breastplate is a picture of a hellish power. You know, again, of the demonic. It's not meant to be just they're wearing pretty jewels and sulfur in their armor, but it's a picture of the power of hell. And he mentions their horses. In 17 to 19, he says their horses, they have these heads like lions, these ferocious beasts that breathe fire and smoke and sulfur. And so the idea is that these are real creatures that are a real threat to humanity that does not trust in God. I mean, think of the, the ferocity of what kills mankind here. It says that by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur, the third of mankind is wiped out. Fire burns and destroys. You, know, you have to look at Australia to see what's happened there, what fire can do. And you think of the people who are trying, you know, animals who are the smoke being choked, the, that asphyxiation, smoke in your lungs killing you. And sulfur, sulfur, you know, when the King James says brimstone, we know it as sulfur. It's poisonous when it gets hot. It's poisonous gas that will kill you. And so it's these deadly things that people fear for good reason. And even their tails do it. It says these, these weird lion-like horses breathe this fire from their mouths, but also from their tails. And so the idea is that there's no escape for humanity from this. Whether they run from its snout or from its back, judgment is going to come. Again, death has returned. Those locusts in the fifth seal could not kill people. They were only permitted as torture, but people are now dying. People's death that they saw is coming. Again, though we are not going to face this as Christians, we have to acknowledge the reality that the enemy is real and the enemy can't be taken lightly. And we've already mentioned multiple times in the church recently about the attacks of the enemy. That the enemy, as a child of God, will come against you. And he will try and make you doubt your salvation. He'll tempt you to sin and then condemn you, saying, look at you, Christian, again and again and again. The enemy will come against you to stop you growing closer to God, to impact your witness to people on what God would want to do in your life. And so he is real. And again, I'm the first person to try and dismiss all of it. But he is, he is real. But the Bible teaches he is defeated. And that's important. Though we have an enemy, we have a defeated enemy. Christ's death on the cross has defeated the devil. He has defeated his power over you. Because what the devil does is he accuses you. And that's his greatest weapon is his words. But Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, speaking of the spiritual powers of the devil, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. 
God has taken our sin. He has nailed it to the cross. The devil can have no power over us as Christians now. His words are lies because we have Christ. So he is defeated. And so when he comes against you, you take up the armor of God as Tyrone taught us last week. You take it up in every circumstance to extinguish those fiery darts of the enemy. Praise God, we have a defeated foe. Our God has defeated him for us. But not for the people here. And these people, they have rejected Christ. They have rejected the good news. They've rejected the free gift of salvation. And a third of them have been killed. And so we ask, well, what happens next? What happens to these people? Imagine a third of everyone, one in three people here just dying from demons attacking them. Again, would you repent? Would you get, maybe God's trying to tell me something? Maybe God wants me to turn from my evil ways. But verse 20 says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see nor hear nor walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their tests. Again, the stubbornness of man's heart, the darkness he is trapped in, Revelation just lays it wide open for us. That by the grace of God, we cannot be saved. So, again, we're not going through this. You know, we will be raptured. We will be taken. We will not go through the tribulation. But we don't want to look at this passage and say, well, that's great. I'm free. So long for the rest of you who have to go through this. It's not that we would. But I think there's three things in this passage, especially in that final, those final few verses that need to be brought out and looked upon. This is the first one. is that God desires people to repent. Again, God teaches, the Bible teaches that God wants to save humanity. That since the fall in the Garden of Eden, God has been on a mission to save his people. Again, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that nobody should perish, but that all may have eternal life. Second Peter, you heard it last week, God is slow. He's not slow to fulfill his promises, but he's patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to a place of repentance. Romans 5a tells us that God shows his love for us while we are sinners, Christ died for us. So God loves you. God loves this world. He loves humanity. He wants them to be saved. When they are in open rebellion against him, Christ died for them. God wants to save the people here in Revelation chapter 9. Otherwise, it wouldn't say they did not repent. God wanted them to repent. There is no end to his grace. You know, God's grace is just, it's immeasurable. And when you think about it, it's almost scandalous. I mean, look at the people described here. Murderers. Thieves. People who want to take your money, your possessions. The sexually immoral. That includes rapists. And all the, the adulterers. All the things you can think of. God wants to save these people. He wants to save politicians who want to take your money through taxes. He wants to save everybody. There is no one beyond his saving. 
And that should be a challenge for you because some people, you know, maybe in the worst part of your hearts, you want justice to come on them. There's a story in the Bible um, when I was in Bible college, I read it for the first time, and it really struck me um, of how gracious God can be. We don't often think of that with the Old Testament. There's a story in the book of Chronicles that always um, amazes me about one of the worst kings in Judah's history, the King Manasseh. Are any of you familiar with King Manasseh? Manasseh was a scumbag. Like, he was the worst of the worst. Um, he, it says he deceived the people and brought God's anger against him and them. And I want, well, Leon's going to throw up on the board, but if you have your Bibles, open up the Second Chronicles, chapter 33. Try, try to find that one. It's uh, right before Ezra. I should have known that. Right before Ezra. But I want you to read the story for me of Manasseh. And we see the lowest of the low and what God can do. So, Second Chronicles 33 says, Manasseh was 12, year old, 12 years old when he began to reign. So a little kid. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the, na of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heavens in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. If you skip down to verse 9, it says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. This guy is vile. As you're reading this and you're seeing the history, he brings them to a place of apostasy that no king had done before. He's involved in idol worship and occultic practices. He burns his children to Molech alive as a pagan offering, demon worship. And you're really, you know, he's the guy that you want to lose. You want to see him being taken down. And what happens is, really on, is we see that the Assyrians capture him in hooks and chains, and they bring him off to Babylon. It says in verse 10 of 33, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought them, the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he goes in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And that struck me the first time I read it. You know, the child murderer, the idol worshiper, the, the worst king in Judah's history, forgiven, restored, and changed. Get the vilest person you know that God can do that in their lives. And we ask, well, how? It's because while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because there is no end to his grace. There was no one beyond saving. And that's why we should never look to someone and say, that person can't be saved. That person is too far gone. 
That's why it is not the mission of the church to seek vengeance, but seek the reconciliation of man to God. Our job isn't to build ourselves up. Our job is to call sinners to repentance, to preach the gospel that Christ has given us, to call them to a relationship with God that he desires them to be in. Again, God wants people to be saved. The second thing we see here is, again, humanity loves the darkness, but humanity can be free from it. Again, humanity here in Revelation 9, they are enslaved to darkness. They love it. Mankind needs to be rescued from slavery to sin because the end result is death. Think about it. People here are worshipping demons, it says there, and demons are killing them. The very things they worship are the things that bring them death and sorrow. And the things they worship lead them into all kinds of sins, again, into murders, which we see today more and more in this country. Sorceries. Now, that word is pharmacia, so the idea here is using mind-altering psychedelic drugs for a religious experience. That happened back then. That happens today. I listen to a number of podcasts, and one in particular, this one guy, he's obsessed with it. And they're always talking about how they're doing these drugs to get into a, you know, a higher spiritual plane and to get more knowledge about the realities and basically getting involved with the occult to get more knowledge. It happens today. People, they want to open themselves up to be spiritual people, but don't think about well, what's going to come into them. Again, Paul, uh, John says these people are sexually immoral. immoral. That's rampant today. Look at the porn industry. Look at the rapes in this country. Look what happens when people give themselves over to evil and theft. There's greed in this country. There's greed in this world. Again, there is a link in nine, Revelation chapter 9 between sinful lifestyles and the things that you worship. These people worship demons and idols instead of God, and their lives showed it. Their lives were not lives that were submitted to God. Their lives were lives of sin. Again, God wants people to be free of this. And God can, through the death of his son, free people from sin and free people from the darkness. There is no sin in your life that God cannot overcome. God can free you from being a slave to darkness. And if you're a Christian, you have been freed. I love the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. He says to Christians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That you followed the course of the earth. That you followed the prince of the power of this earth, Satan. That you were obeying your, your carnal instincts of your flesh, the desires of your flesh and your mind. And that you were by nature children of wrath, God's, is what God's word says. But Paul says, but God in his mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, we have been saved. God can and he will set you free from sin, set you free from darkness if you turn to him in repentance and seek his grace. He will transfer you from the kingdom of darkness, from the demonic, into the kingdom of his beloved son. He can and will do that. I know that firsthand. You know, part of my testimony, I don't share a, lot, a whole lot, is I came from a very, well, it's Catholic, a very pagan, very Eastern, very occultic background. From a very young age, I was encouraged to get the candles out, put on the Zen music, and meditate. 
I told my mother, my father came in one day, I messed up, my brother were meditating in the front room with my mother, and he was like, what is going on here? I grew up in a house with books on Wiccan and mythology and demons and meditation, and I soaked those things up. I loved horoscopes. I loved tarot cards. I loved the idea of Ouija boards and all these things. My life was obsessed with seeking after darkness. I would spend hours, once I discovered the internet as a teenager, trying to see how I can embrace and develop my, my key. Some people call it chi. I would spend hours in these meditative poses trying to get energy from something else. I was involved in a martial art where we bestowed power to paper. We had notes, and if you dared touch someone's notes ir ir irreverently, we had to go over and apologize to these notes. At the start and the end of every session, we would get down and bow in our faces before the sacred scroll in a language I do not know, and it would not tell you what it meant until you got higher up in the ranks. You know, I was obsessed with darkness. I think Clay once called me, uh, one of the old pastors, a demonic youth. And that's what I was. I don't think I was like demon possessed or anything like that. But like, when I look at the ways of my life, I was following after the enemy. You know, I was a heavy drinker. I had, I was a thief. I had a murderous heart. I hated people. I wished dead upon people. Even family members. I went through fits of depression. I spent times, long periods of times in my life through serious, heavy self-harm. And most of all, I hated Christians. I could not stand real Christians who loved God, knew their Bible, and told me I had to repent. I wanted to hurt them. Do you ever do street evangelism? You always have that little fear. What if one guy jumps me? I was that guy. And I wanted to run Christians out of the town. My life was given over to darkness and to the enemy and to his ways. But God did something amazing. God, through his word, through the Holy Spirit, convicted me and brought me to a place of repentance and trust in him. And he's freed me from a lot of that, from all of that lifestyle. You know, I don't get drunk anymore. I don't experiment with drugs and psychedelic drugs anymore. I don't hurt myself anymore. I don't hate people anymore. I am a changed person. And you know, praise God, I haven't ever bowed down to a scroll in years. I don't ever plan to again. So what happens? Again, quoting Colossians, when I was dead in my sins, God made me alive in Christ. He has forgiven me my sins. He has nailed my death and the enemy's hold over my life to the cross. There's a passage I love in 1 Corinthians a reminder of what happened in my life, and if you're a Christian, what has happened in yours. First Corinthians chapter 6. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And I read this and I say, And so was I. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And if you are trapped in sin, 
if you're doing the same thing over and over again, if you've been caught up with things that give glory to demons, if you feel oppressed by the demonic, if you're not a Christian and you think you might be possessed by the demonic, then know that there is freedom in Christ. Freedom to walk away from sin and freedom and the power to live a holy, godly life. Paul says in Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Do not submit yourself to a yoke of slavery. So guys, as we go forward this morning, let that be our, our call to action. That Jesus Christ has set us free. We just haven't been saved from the wrath to come. We've been saved from the sin in our lives now. And may we walk in the freedom that God's Holy Spirit gives us. That we would walk in step with the Spirit. That we would seek the Spirit. That we would walk in the newness of life that Christ has given us. Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with him also. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for the truth in it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have set us free. God, would you help us to walk in that freedom and help us to invite people to experience that freedom, God. Give us boldness, Lord. Holy Spirit, empower us to preach the word of God to people, to invite them to come into that relationship with you that is possible through the cross of Christ. God, would you set a fire in our hearts for the lost, that we may too see people saved from the wrath to come, just as we were saved, God. Thank you for your mercy and your grace, God. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.